Welcome to season three of Take a Moment. I'm Mari Yamaguchi. And I'm Nathan Bennett. In May of 2015, our guest today, IndyCar racer and superstar James Hinchcliffe, almost lost his life. He hit a wall with 126 Gs of force. He was traveling in his car at over 200 miles an hour. The impact was the largest ever recorded in IndyCar history. When James woke up in the hospital, he didn't have much of a memory of anything about the accident, but he was told by doctors that he wouldn't walk for two weeks. He walked in four days. He was told he would be in the hospital for a month. He was out in 10 days. He was told he wouldn't drive a car for six to seven months at least, and he drove four months later. James is an amazing guest because he has been through some of the most difficult circumstances in life and has come out the other side reinvigorated, refocused, with an amazing amount of determination to succeed. And that's why we have him as our very first guest in season three of Take a Moment. Mari, I know you loved this conversation with James. Yes, absolutely. There's really something special about racing in the month of May here in Indianapolis, whether you live here or whether you come and visit. And this was a little taste of what folks can experience when they come to the Indy 500. Now, I know that with the times being what they are, we are now in August and we are just a few days away from the Indy 500, which is traditionally held in May. But I think that's what makes this special. It's really about the show must go on here. And I think one of the things with the Indy 500, whether it is in the month of May or whenever it is, it's there's things that are going to be out of our control, whether it's weather, whatever. But the one thing with the race is that the show must go on and it always happens. And especially in these times of uncertainty, I think it's great when we can have a little taste of that tradition. James talks about his time not only behind the wheel, but also at Dancing with the Stars. Uh, some folks remember him from his second place <laughs> final position in Dancing with the Stars in 2016. And some people might even remember him from his episode of Celebrity Family Feud. But we get into all that. It's an amazing episode that you're not going to want to miss. So thank you for taking a moment with us. James, first of all, happy anniversary, first year anniversary, right, to your wife, Becky. Yes, thank you very much. I appreciate that. We survived uh, year one. You survived <laughs> year one. And not only did you survive year one, but you survived year one when a lot of it was in the year 2020. And yeah. I have a specific interest in this as well, because my wife and I just got married last October of 2019. Okay. So much of this year has been our first year of marriage. And it's been kind of incredible how much we've learned about each other and our responses to a lot of things within our household and without. And I'm wondering what you have learned from or about your wife during this first year of marriage, maybe even especially during this time where the world is a little crazy. Yeah, it's it's a great question and it's a great point. And I got to say, this is going to sound borderline corny, but we, we've had this discussion. We're like, man, if we've learned one thing about ourselves and our marriage through, you know, everything that 2020 is and has been and continues to be, it's that we did all right on picking our partner because 
we have so many friends that are, you know, they're like, oh, we can't wait. We need time apart. We can't wait to, you know, get traveling again or, you know, get back to work or all these different things. And Becky and I are kind of like, yeah, I mean, if, if we're stuck in the house for another couple of months, like it sucks because we're, you know, stuck in the house, but like you're the person I'd most like to be stuck in a house with. So I guess that's actually kind of best case scenario. <laughs> I kind of, I was having a conversation with my boss sort of uh, in, I don't know, late April or early May. And it was after we had been working from home and quarantined for about a month and a half. And my conversation with him was, hey, you know, he asked how we were doing. And I said, you know, it's kind of awesome because I know this sounds dumb, but I really enjoy hanging out with my wife. Mm -hmm. It's really, really cool. And he was like, yeah, I guess, I mean, good, you should. So <laughs> I guess... We That's both feel kind of the idea. It's kind of the idea, you know, hanging out with them forever. So it's cool that you enjoy it now. <laughs> That's that's awesome, James. Getting into the way the world is now, can we talk a little bit about the way the world was a long, long time ago in Oakville, Ontario, when little Hinch is going to Goodwood Cartways and you're getting on those carts and going around the track? What was it about going fast in the speed that these cars are enabling you to have? What was it about that that captivated your imagination and eventually your passion as you grew up? You know, it's funny. I'm, I'm a weird guy and my brain doesn't work in a normal way. So the, the first part of it is I, I just fell in love with motorsports as a kid because of my dad. I mean, my dad was a huge racing fan and we would go to the Indy in Toronto every year and watch the Indy cars and I'd be glued to the fence, like full on waffle belly up against the fence, just like completely enamored by what I was seeing. And, and the thrill of the sport really captured me at a very young age, well before I ever drove anything. And then I started racing go-karts at Goodwood Cartways, very, very well done, uh, well-researched when I was nine years old. And I'll be honest, I sucked. I was terrible. I was so bad. And uh, it was so bad that like halfway through my first season racing carts, my dad looked at me and he goes, you know, if, if this isn't fun for you anymore, we can, we can stop. We can sell the cart. It's not a big deal. No problem. And this is where I'm kind of weird. I mean, I, I just, I'm so competitive. I'm such a competitive personality. And I just said, no, no, dad, I'm, I'm getting better. And it literally was to like, I remember the first race where I didn't fall a lap down to the leader. And I was so happy because I'm like, that's progress. And I just applied myself so hard to get better because I wanted to be good at this thing that I was so in love with. But it didn't, it didn't like come super naturally to me. I've got to be honest. I just, I had that mindset of just kind of always wanting to push myself and challenge myself and, and eventually get to where I wanted to go. And luckily I, I stuck with it, kind of worked out, I guess. So tell us a little bit about that progression from carts to now you're in these big indie cars. I mean, there's a little bit of a transition, <laughs> I think, going from a small oval to now a big oval. So kind of walk us through for those folks who might not be as familiar with racing on what does that progression look like? Yeah. So, so like every sport, there are, you know, the different levels of the sport, you know, the ladder of, of motorsports as it were. And, and you, most people start in some kind of go-kart. Um, I started at nine, which by today's standards is actually pretty old. Even when I got my first go-kart, the guy that sold it to him, my dad and I said, oh, he's nine, he's over the hill. And what is the age, the right, the, like the prime age for someone to start? So those carts? they start racing as young as five. I would say, you know, seven's probably the best age, you know, five, you're probably not quite developed enough mentally to be handling, like, you know, very dangerous equipment. Even seven's a stretch, but I've, I've seen it done. 
but you know, so when we, when we did that, we said to the guy, well, it doesn't matter. I mean, you know, James isn't trying to be a race car driver. That's stupid. You know, even at nine years old, I knew that wasn't a real job. That wasn't something real people got to do. I just, I had a passion for racing. My dad had a passion for racing and it was a hobby. It was just, you know, a lot of guys play golf without ever wanting to be in the PGA and that's totally cool. So this was what we did. And when I was about 14 years old, I joined what is, for lack of a better term, uh, the professional kind of karting circuit. And by that point, I'd been sort of discovered by a guy that ran a team in the pro karting world. And, you know, he said, I think you're good enough to run there. And that is the world where it's all kids that are, you know, hell bent on having a career in motorsports. And so that's kind of when my focus switched a little bit. And I thought, okay, if I'm going to be racing against the people that are essentially the future of this sport and I can compete with them, then maybe I've got a future in it. So at 14, uh, we switched to kind of pro karting and I really started gearing my life towards trying to become a, a professional driver. At 17, I got sponsored by BMW. I was picked up by BMW to race for them in kind of the, the, the first series in proper formula cars out of go-karts. And then from there, it was, you know, another seven years of kind of bouncing around the different categories. So every time you move up, the cars are a little bit more powerful. They have a little bit more downforce. The braking's a little bit better. And it kind of moves up in like 20% increments. So, you know, I, I did the BMW series, then I moved to a series called Pro Mazda. Then you move to a series that's called Indy Lights, essentially. That's the college football to pro football. It's kind of the one below the, the big guys. And, you know, Indy Lights, we run on all the same tracks as the Indy cars on their weekends. And that's when you kind of get discovered by the teams and the team owners and things like that. And so I did a couple of years in Indy Lights and then finally got an opportunity to do a test with an IndyCar team and the test went well. And then it was, uh, was off to the races, so to speak. And in all of that, there's certain rituals that happen, right? Like before a competition, I, I always had to have like one boot on before the other. There was like a sequence of things that I had to do in order to make sure I was going to be the best. What are some of your pre-race rituals? Has it changed since you were 17 or is it still the same? So I, I'm superstitious about not being superstitious. So I've, you know, a lot of drivers have exactly what you're talking about. They've got to put on their left boot before the right boot. And they've got to wear a certain pair of gloves and they've got to get in from a certain side of the car and all these things they've got to do. And I remember I did that once when I was 17 years old and I thought to myself, I took it even a step further, you know, like I ate the same lunch. I, I went to the bathroom at the same urinal in the bathroom, you know, like I, I try to do everything the exact same uh, after having a really good day the day before. And then I thought to myself, like, what if I'd come into the bathroom and some guy was standing in my urinal? Was I really going to sit there and wait for him when there's three other ones open? Like, how far am I willing to take this? And then I, I thought, think no, that's when you, I think that's when you tap him on the shoulder and say, excuse me, do you know who I am? <laughs> sir, that's I'm, I'm sorry. I'm going to, sir, gonna I'm going to need you to, you to move. Exactly. So, yeah. So that, so I decided at that moment, I'm like, no, the, the order that I get dressed or the urinal in which I urinate is not the cause of my success or failure. It's me. It's how I perform. It's how I, you know, I'm in, in my own head when I get in the car. And so if I was ever in the position where I couldn't do my ritual the same way, I've done a lot of mental coaching. I've worked with a bunch of coaches and then you're already in the wrong mindset, right? You're in the wrong headspace because you think you're, you, you're wearing the wrong underwear or you put your boots on the wrong order. 
And so I tried to, after that, I tried to do everything different. If I had a good day, I would put everything on different. I'd use a different pair of shoes. I'd, I'd always mix it up because I said, I'm the reason that I have a good day or a bad day, nothing else. I am in a sense superstitious, but it's, it's about not being overly superstitious. You know, and I had this conversation with Tony Kanan, you know, he's legend of the sport and, and fan favorite around Indianapolis. He's one of those guys. He has all these crazy things that he has to do or won't do. And one of them is he'll never wear a brand new suit in a race. He has to at least have worn it in practice before he'll race in it. And so he was telling me this. I said, Tony, you're out of your damn mind. If you honestly think that the number of miles in a suit affects your performance, I don't even want to be near you on the track. Stay away from me. I don't trust you. And so I got him all riled up about this, which is easy to do. God bless him. I love Tony. And so he goes, all right, fine. I qualified 15th today at a bad qualifying. I'm going to put on a brand new suit for the race. And he finished third. And so he came up to me afterwards. He's like, all right, fine. You win. <laughs> fair enough. Fair enough. Yeah. I, maybe he just doesn't want to reuse a suit after he's just like gone to the bathroom in that suit during races so many times. That's, I mean, that's potentially true. It's potentially true. I assume, you know, a, a brand new suit is just lighter. It has to be. <laughs> Pinch, when we talk a lot about mindset, one of the things I'm fascinated by you and those like you who have to have a really particular kind of focus and determination. I'm interested to know when you're parked on the grid before a race and you're buckled in and you're getting ready to hit the gas, what is going through your mind? Are you thinking about turns? Are you thinking about who you need to get around and blow past? Um, where is your focus and how are you plotting through, if at all, that race ahead of you? So what you learn the more you do this is that you can have a plan A and a plan B, C, D, E, F, G, pick a letter. And by usually turn three of lap one, that's all gone out the window and you're flying by the seat of your pants. And so what I always try to do is just prepare for certain possibilities you know, you'll sit down with your engineers in a pre-race meeting. You will say, hey, look, if X, then Y. And you'll go through a bunch of different possible scenarios. There are a few things that you will say, you'll set out from the get-go saying, all right, we're going we're gonna to do this race, this strategy. But you have to know what all the other strategy options are because it can all change in an instant. You need to be able to switch on the fly and, and kind of keep it moving seamlessly. So I, I do all my preparation before I ever get in the car. And then when I'm physically strapped in, I've got a little kind of mental exercise that I do, which is probably the closest thing to my, you know, ritual uh, that I've got. And it's just little things to make sure that I'm kind of in the moment. And I actually just try and, and stay calm and try and stay sort of clear headed. I don't want to overthink things because it never goes the way you plan. So there's no point trying to think it out. Or like, if he goes here, I'm going to go there. Or, oh, I'm definitely going to try the outside of turn one of it. Because it just, if, as soon as you say that, that's never what ends up happening. And so it's staying calm, it's staying loose, and it's just reacting. You know, our sport is so much about quick decision-making, reacting to things happening in front of you at a, at a very high rate of speed. And you have to kind of rely on your experience in that quite a bit. Planning is sometimes a little moot. So as long as you're prepared, you know, you don't have to plan in the moment. You kind of just react and, and you know what to do in a given scenario. James, I know you've said in regards to your career that you've been kicked down before and come back stronger. I'd love to unpack a little bit more of how you have done that over the course of your career, specifically after May of 
2015, when you had a pretty horrific crash. Can you tell our listeners who may not be as familiar with that story, what happened on that day from your viewpoint of the driver's seat? Sure. So May 2015, obviously it's it's 500 season here in Indy and we were practicing. Uh, we always have a, a Monday practice after qualifying weekend. So qualifying was done and it was kind of our last full day of practice before the race weekend itself. And I was just out there working on my race car. I was following Juan Montoya at the time and was just kind of working on my car in a draft, which is, you know, obviously a, a big part of, of what we have to do. And I was going through turn three and a, uh, a suspension failure from a part that just broke caused my car to kind of careen off into the wall at about 225 miles an hour. Now that doesn't tickle on a good day, but uh, on a, in a really bad day in a perfect storm of scenarios, a piece of the suspension, a metal rod essentially shot through the car like a bullet and it went straight into my body. And so I had a, a piece of steel that's about two inches in diameter and about three feet long kind of go through my pelvis area. And what it did is it actually nicked my femoral artery on my left leg on the way through. And when luckily at this particular point, I'm now though conscious, I'm told very concussed and don't actually remember the details here, but the emergency workers, the, uh, the safety team that travels with IndyCar, who are absolutely the best and the best in the business, they managed to take what was a very freak accident, a scenario and an injury that they had almost no training or protocols for because it's never happened quite like that in IndyCar. They were able to think on the fly and use their experience. They saw the issue. They got me out of the car quickly into an ambulance and, and on the road down to Methodist. They, they lost my pulse on the way up to the OR. They couldn't keep, they couldn't keep the blood in me because I had these massive puncture wounds. I had my artery severed. And through a tremendous effort from everybody at, at IU Health Methodist, they, they were able to patch me back together. And I went from, you know, the last thing I remember is crossing the start finish line to start that lap. And the next thing I remember is waking up, uh, staring up at a bunch of bright lights, a bunch of concerned faces standing around me. I'm on a backboard in a neck brace with a tube down my throat and I had to communicate with a pen and a piece of paper. So I thought to myself, well, this isn't good. <laughs> Something's gone wrong. And that was kind of the beginning of a, uh, of a pretty crazy journey for me to try to get, you know, back into a race car and, and back, back Indy car racing. So fast forward one year to now it's 2016 and you've taken the pole position for, to start the Indy 500. Tell us what that feels like to be at the same track again, nearly almost a couple days apart from when something so horrific has happened. How do you approach qualifications again? How do you approach getting back in the driver's seat after having something so devastating happen? Yeah, it's funny. You know, I make the joke all the time that, that racing drivers are wired differently and probably wrong. This is actually a better way of putting it, wired not quite right. And the reason being is when I was coming through my recovery, I made a really conscious effort to not associate any of the pain or any of the rehab or any of the things that I had to do to get back into the car. I tried to very hard to not associate it with the car or with that track. You know, from my standpoint, mentally, I got hurt. Doesn't matter how it happened, it is irrelevant. 
I got hurt. All that mattered was how I get back into the car. If I had treated it like, oh, this car hurt me, then maybe it would have been harder for me to get back into it. Or this track is particularly dangerous. It might've been harder for me to want to go back and race there. But I, I took both of those things completely out of my mind and just focused on the present, the situation I was in, how could I make it better and get myself out of it? And so when we ended up coming back to Indy, you know, a year later, everybody was talking about it. You know, it's all anybody wanted to talk about. And I was so over it at that point. And I mean that in the sense, not of people talking about it, but just me, myself, I was so over the accident and I was so okay with what had happened and where I'd come back to, you know, I came back fitter and stronger than I'd ever been before. And we'd already been racing again. I'd already been back on an oval. I'd actually already had another crash on an oval and testing at Phoenix. So there were, there was nothing scary left for me, but I got back there and that was just the story everybody wanted to tell. Right. And so for me, it, I treated it like any other May. And I, I was very fortunate in that the way I had dealt with it and sort of processed the whole experience from the day of the accident to the day I got back in a car in a way that made it so easy for me to just rock up to the speedway next May and, and treat it like any other, any other time. But the one thing I said to my crew was, look, guys, all I want is for us to leave May this year with a new story to tell because everybody's just telling it's been a year now we've heard this story like let's give them something else to talk about and when we qualified on pole that was changing the narrative a bit you know and it was such a cool accomplishment for us as a team for me as a driver you know it was obviously proving to everybody that I was I wasn't going to be held back I wasn't going to be intimidated by that place any more than everybody else already is because it is just you know a scary place in general but, you know, for the team, I wasn't the only person that went through that accident. You know, we're a family and, and we all went through it together and, and to be able to go back and, and build the fastest race car and, and put it around that track, especially for the 100th running of the 500. It was an incredibly special moment, a very emotional moment and, and one I'm, I'm very glad I got to share with all those guys. Good stuff, but we have to take a quick commercial break when we come back more with James Hinchcliffe. Hello there, Josh Reed here, your friendly neighborhood producer of Take a Moment. Now, I know that we're riding off the coattails of an amazing second season, but we're excited to get back into the swing of things for season three. We have a number of exciting guests like James who are ready to tell their stories of success in business and beyond. In this season, you'll hear from Genesis customers, our leadership team, including returning guest Genesis CEO, Tony Bates, technology experts, and more. We're so happy to welcome you guys back. And for those new listeners, be sure to take a look at our previous seasons and our recently recorded Leadership Through Crisis series, where we explore the difficulties of navigating leadership during the COVID-19 pandemic, the need for diversity, equity, and inclusion in the workplace, and how to be an ally for those who are oppressed in all walks of life, both professional and personal. And as always, thanks for listening. Make sure you click that subscribe button, share with your friends and colleagues, and if you're feeling adventurous, rate us on whichever podcast app that you use. And stay tuned for the next episode of Take a Moment. Welcome back to Take a Moment. We're here to continue our conversation with James Hinchcliffe. So James, I kind of want to pick up after your crash through all of that experience and through all the other things that you've mentioned, it's never really been me or I in your vocabulary. I've been picking up that you say we and team a lot. 
let's transition now to kind of talking about what it really takes to put on a race, what it takes to get you, James Hinchcliffe, and other drivers out there and that aspect of the team and how it's a perfect storm. Everything just has to align for all of it to happen and get orchestrated and stitched together. Tell us a little bit about the importance of team. Well, it's a great question because I think a lot of people associate motorsports as more of an individual sport. So the way you would maybe tennis or golf compared to a football or hockey. And the truth is it could not be any more of a team. It's really the epitome of a team sport. There may be one driver in the car. Yes, fine. But then every time you come into the pits, there are six people over the wall that have to do their job absolutely perfectly, or you've got zero chance of winning. And then on the other side of the pit wall, there are six engineers that are constantly monitoring data and making all the decisions on the setup. And if they don't do their job perfectly, you've got no chance of winning. And then back at the garage, there are the mechanics that built the car and assembled it. And then back at the shop, there are the ones that built the parts and did the R&D. And then there's the commercial department that gets the cash for us to even go racing and the sponsorship for us to go racing. It's, it's quite literally a team of, I'm going to guess 20 to 25 people just to get one indie car to a race weekend and on the track and, you know, compete for a win. And, you know, moreover, when I'm out on the racetrack, I'm driving a car that these, these guys and girls have built for me. I've got to trust that their handiwork is good because my life is on the line. And likewise, you know, when I come into the pits, we're doing 60 miles an hour down pit lane. There's exposed people. There's six people over the wall for every car that's in the race. And if you don't hit your marks perfectly, you could mow somebody down at 60 miles an hour with a race car. And, and that's very dangerous. So their lives are in my hands. And the level of trust that's needed, the level of respect that's needed, I can't think of an example of teamwork short of maybe building a rocket ship that's quite as, quite as poignant. And so... I hate that we kind of have to fight that battle when people think that it's not a team sport, but I love educating people on on really how much it does take to just get one car on track to compete against 23 to 33 other cars on a Sunday. I know your career has had so many different facets to it, certainly rooted in IndyCar and motorsports, but you've had so many other things that you've been involved from broadcasting to being on Dancing with the Stars to your own podcasts, and we could go on and on and on. You seem like somebody who gives 100% to everything that you do. I love a quote from you. You said it's actually relatively easy to drive an IndyCar at 95%, but at 95%, you're going to finish last. Yeah. I love that. And I think I, I would love it if you could give our listeners a little bit more perspective on what it takes for you to have that drive and determination, that 100% commitment in whatever that thing is that you've chosen to do in that moment. If it's sitting down behind a steering wheel, if it's getting up on this gigantic stage to dance uh, in ways that you've never done before, you're throwing yourself into it 100%. How does Hinchcliffe do that? Yeah, I mean, it's, uh, it's kind of like I said off the top, you know, about my, my start in karting. I'm an incredibly competitive person. I'm a bit of a perfectionist. I always like a challenge. I always like pushing myself. And I just, I just always want to do the best and be the best at whatever it is I'm doing. So you take that kind of personality trait and then, you know, you merge it with somebody with a passion for motorsports and okay, boom, you've got racing driver. But when then these other opportunities come up, be it broadcasting or dancing with the stars or, you know, the other things I've had the opportunity to do. And I'm, I'm so lucky to have had so many of these opportunities. I can't help but have that same mentality. 
of just always wanting to do the absolute best job that I can do to prepare to the, you know, most extreme level. And, you know, just even this year getting to do some, some of the broadcasting stuff, you know, I was up till midnight before the race in Iowa, just going through my notes and putting together some stats and texting other drivers and getting, you know, the feel of what's happened. And it's just, I don't even realize I'm doing it. It's just how I'm programmed. And I love these challenges. And if I don't feel like I did the best job that I could possibly do, I'm just not going to sleep well that night. And I really like sleeping. So I just try to knock that question mark out by just doing it the best I can first go around. I know that the Genesis sponsorship came at a really important time in your life and in your career. I'm wondering if you could tell our listeners a little bit more about how that sponsorship uh, came to be and what it meant to you in your life specifically at that time. Yeah, so my my career had a bit of a speed bump after a uh, contract dispute, let's call it, with my former team at a very inopportune time. And, and Genesis was honestly a lifeline for me. I mean, I, I owe the company so much for the faith in, in me and, and the program we put together together. But it all started in the most, I was going to say 2020 way possible. We'll say 2019 way possible because technically it started in 2019 and 2020 sucks. So is the most 2019 way possible in that first contact was through a, a DM on Instagram. Like some, someone from Genesis, Alex Ball, he slid into my DMs on Instagram, uh, which I think is how the kids say it these days. And, <laughs> that's how uh, Alex would say it, yes. That, yeah, yeah. Yep. But that's, that's how the conversation started. And it was so funny because I've been around the sport a long time. I've worked with a lot of companies and had a lot of sponsors and I can tell you that, you know, securing sponsorship to go motor racing is one of the most challenging things on earth. And the one thing that never happens is they don't call you. That's not how that works. And so I get this message and it's like, hey man, you know, work for a local indie tech company, looking at getting involved in motorsports, potentially heard your story about what happened with you. Think you got to run to the deal there. What's a budget for an indie car? And that's a very loaded question because the, the scale is, I mean, enormous. And so I was like, this guy thinks that, you know, respectfully, his company can write, again, he says a local tech, I don't know what right, he's talking right. about, right? Of course. So I'm like, oh, he thinks he can write a check for 10 grand and it's going to help out. But like, that's not really the cost of motorsports. Again, a lot of money, but it's not, you know. So I wrote him back a, a fairly 30,000 foot view of how it works. I'm like, hey man, thanks for the note. Yeah, it really depends on what you're looking for, what level of involvement. It goes from, you know, X to Y, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Fully expecting to never hear back from this person ever again. He writes me back the next day and says, okay, cool. Thanks for the update. Let me run it up to my CMO. I'll get back to you. That's usually where we never hear from them again. And, and then I get a message the next day saying, yeah, so, you know, my CMO was super interested. Uh, he's a big racing guy. Can you give us a more thorough breakdown? And I said, well, why don't I start by giving you my email address and we start communicating like grownups and then we can really, you know, dive into this. And, and that's kind of how it started. And what was so amazing about the whole thing, and I, you know, I, I could tell this, this story over an hour, but I'll, I'll make this a very, very quick point. Racing uh, sponsorships with companies that have never been involved in motorsports can take 12, 18, 24 months of cultivation to really get them to understand the concept, understand the, the potential for ROI, whatever their particular goals are. You bring them out to races, you let them see it, smell it, hear it, get it. And then eventually you get a deal done. Alex reached out to me in mid-November and by mid-January, we were standing on stage in Florida announcing the deal. I've never seen a company inquire 
understand, embrace, and activate on a, on a motorsport sponsorship as quickly as Genesis has. And I'm talking about companies one one hundredth of the size can't even get on top of it as quickly as Genesis did. So th this organization and, and how nimble they've been and how incredible they've been to work with, you guys really are a very unique thing in business from what I've seen. And I've seen a lot of businesses and a lot of different industries. And that's something I think you guys should be very proud of. We pride ourselves, much like yourself, on speed and innovation. Yes, yes there you go. Do you see how I worked that in there? Do you see I like how I that. That was good. Circle. Full, full circle. circle. <laughs> so I want to shift gears here. Yeah, I know. Bad pun. <laughs> but either way, we're going to shift gears. I uh, want to talk about the road to Indy. We traditionally would be talking about this in May, but here we are in August. And want to touch on that piece about fans. So there's something special, not only about the Indy 500, but also about racing. No other sport really gives fans the access to the athlete that racing does. And as you're preparing for the month of May, now August, in this road to Indy, how do you still maintain that special bond and that relationship that you have with your fans? That it's almost like that secret sauce, that intimacy that you are able to have, that fans are able to have to connect and really have that personal relationship with each of you. So as you're preparing now in this virtual setting, how do you still maintain that relationship with your fans? It's been such a challenge because at the end of the day, as much as all let's say for the Indy 500, you know, 33 cars start the 500. And as much as all 33 of us are egocentric enough to think that this is all happening just so we get to go drive race cars, it's got nothing to do with us. What we do is purely for the fans. And they're the only reason that we get to do what we do. They're the only reason that we have the, the, the privilege to get to do what we do and not being able to share, like you said, one of the coolest experiences in sports that race day at the 500 is, is really unlike anything else. And I've been to a lot of different sporting events. I've been to Super Bowls and Kentucky Derbies, and I've been very lucky. And, and obviously I'm biased because it's my sport, but still it's got this energy and this atmosphere about it. And like you say, I mean, the cars are right there. The drivers are right there. These 33 drivers that are going to go do battle at 220 plus miles an hour for three and a half hours. It's such a unique thing to see. And so not being able to share that with them in person at the track is very different. It feels different for us in the car, you know, especially in the buildup to the race. And I think that we have incredibly supportive fans and incredibly understanding fans. And for the races that we've had to run this year without fans or limited fans, they, they get that that's not what we want, you know, that we are all doing this as best we can, given the circumstances, we would all rather at least be able to put on some kind of race that you could have to, you know, even if you've got to watch it from home, we can at least be there and putting on a show for you guys. Cause that's, like I said, this is why we do it and why we get to do it. I think that it maybe made some people lean a little more on social media because you can have some incredible fan interactions, you know, through different social channels. And uh, that's always something I've tried to be really active on just because I, I think back to, you know, nine-year-old James running around the, the Toronto Indy chasing my heroes with a Sharpie and a hero car trying to get an autograph. And the thought that like, I could have maybe pulled out my cell phone and tweeted at somebody and like a million to one chance they saw it and liked it. Or I mean, oh my God, replied. Are you, are you kidding me? 
And so like now no one can chase you around to get those autographs. So if you're reaching out on social media, I know I at least am going that extra mile to try to reply to people and have that little bit of a connection because they're being robbed of that right now. And obviously we all hope it's very temporary and it's over as quickly as possible, but for now it's our reality and we just kind of have to adjust accordingly. James, we like to play a little game with our guests at the close of our shows called Take Five, Fast Five. And I know okay. you like doing things fast. So, and also I know you're such a pro at answering tough questions hard because I know you rocked it on Celebrity Family Feud uh, <laughs> with, your, with your team of drivers. So you're ready. You've been in this, uh, in the hot seat before. Uh, so are That's you ready? True. Get buckled yes, that in. Was one of the most, yes, it was one of the most stressful experiences. One yes, of the most stressful ready. experiences having to compete against and the other team was full of models or something, wasn't it? It was uh, Sports Illustrated uh, swimsuit models. And I'm proud to say that we didn't allow them to score a single point. Oh, so wow, a shutout. When I talk about competitiveness and doing everything 100%, like I'm, I'm talking, this was a charity family feud <laughs> game against a team of, you know, all women. And, and we, we were ruthless. We were absolutely ruthless. <laughs> And it all of you terrible. are jacked up on Red Bull and adrenaline, <laughs> just ready to go in there. Let's do it, guys. Doing burnouts in the parking lot before yeah, exactly. we get in. Oh, exactly. How do, you get, how do you get, as a group of drivers, how do you get jacked up to do that kind of yeah. thing? That's ridiculous. Uh, so anyway, I know that you are uh, familiar with high stakes games such as this one. So buckle in. Okay. We just want to get your first initial gut responses to these fast questions. There are no wrong answers. There's always wrong answers. Well, there's always wrong answers. There's just answers that'll make you look like a, just a total fool, James Hinchcliffe. <laughs> so beware of those. Mari, kick us off. All right. Road or oval? Yes. That is <laughs> that the right is answer. Right. That's correct. That's the <laughs> right answer. Favorite racetrack? Oh, man. So I'm going to interject. I know I'm ruining the whole No, that's okay. That's thing. okay. This is your but time. We- we always have to take Indianapolis out of it because it's not a fair fight. So, if Oh, you, you didn't let me finish Indy, my question. My question was, favorite racetrack outside of Indy? Okay, perfect. Ah, uh, right, right. There you go. Now there. Uh, Road America. Okay. Nice. Milk or Hinchtown Hammerdown in Victory Circle? Oh, you can't mess with tradition. As good as a Hammerdown is, you can't mess with tradition. It's got to be milk. <laughs> Dancing with the Stars or Celebrity Family Feud? <laughs> Dancing with the Stars. Favorite racing legend of all time? My hero is a guy called Greg Moore, Canadian driver who was killed in an accident in 1999, but he was, he was my hero. He was my favorite. Favorite racing movie of all time? Probably Grand Prix. That one was just, you couldn't shoot a movie like that. I mean, that was like, they used the real cars on the real tracks. I mean, I think there was back when they were still like bungee cording cameramen to the front of the cars to get, you know, the most accurate. It's not none of that CGI stuff. Like that was a good, pure racing movie. That was one of the most reality driven movies. It just seemed so visceral and dangerous as you're watching it. Yes. Uh, absolutely. There was another movie that I ran across that Sylvester Stallone was in called like Driven. Driven. Yes. And they're driving like in two Indy cars. They're like driving down the street and they're blowing uh, glass up on. So the the follow-up to your question is what's the worst racing movie of (laughs) all time? The answer (laughs) is Driven. It's going to be that. Yeah. Yeah. Because of the accuracy in it. (laughs) I remember when that movie came out because I was in high school at the time and I just got into car racing out of go-karts. I'm like, I'll I'll, I'll share a little something with you guys. 
when you're in high school, going around and telling the girls that you race go-karts really doesn't play very well. And it's so, not a huge, it's not a huge selling point for you. Football players and the rugby players and the rest of those guys, you know, they were, they were still doing better than old Hinge. In high school. <laughs> so when you were like, Hey baby, I'll pick you up at seven on my cart. Yeah. My right. Yeah. right. Yeah. Okay. So, so I moved into cars and like, and so none of my friends understood racing and this indie car movies coming out and I'm like, guys, we got to go. Then you'll understand what it is I do. And I think we got like 10 minutes into the movie. There was 10 of us in there. I remember it was 10 of us in the theater and I was sitting at the end and I leaned forward 10 minutes in and I said, nothing, ignore everything from here on out. This is nothing like what I do. I was so upset that that movie was so bad. You had to set the record straight just for everybody. Yes. That is this is not pure it. fiction. That is not nothing it. to do with reality. Enjoy if you wish. I'm going to sit here and sulk <laughs> in the corner. James, that's a good place to finish. Thank you so much for taking a moment with Mari and I. And listen, best of luck to you coming up in the race. We're going to be watching, and we cannot wait for you to kick all the butt. Thank you so much, guys. Thanks for having me on. And as always, everybody at Genesis, thanks for the support. We'll be uh, Genevieve and I will be working our hardest to get up to the front. I promise you that. Give Genevieve a kiss for us. <laughs> I sure will. Thanks, buddy. <laughs>